Thank you. Um, the topic is biblical counseling. Uh, a definition of biblical counseling is uh, a maturing believer bringing the comfort, correction, and guidance of Holy Scripture to the heart of a person in pain. A maturing believer bringing the comfort, correction, and guidance of the Bible to the heart of a soul in pain. And the reason that we're doing that, the reason we're thinking about this is, the question comes up, is Ascension Presbyterian Church the kind of place where people need biblical counseling, or are we the people who have got it all together? Uh, if we're people who need counseling, then we would welcome into our assembly other folks who, who need some help along the road of life. Uh, if we don't need counseling, then we are just by nature not going to be a very welcoming community because people who are in need, struggling in life, are going to see us as the together people, which is very off-putting. Um, so, uh, that's the question to be answered, and then the follow-on question was, would um, a personal question, uh, do you see yourself as a person who uh, might join an enterprise of, uh, as a maturing believer, bringing the comfort of the, and correction and guidance of the Word of God to bear on uh, the heart of one of your brothers or sisters or somebody you don't even know, uh, bringing the Word of God to bear in a loving, understanding way uh, to other folks. So, um, We've only just scratched the surface. This has all been sort of um, introductory. Uh, we may come back to this sometime, but I uh, wanted to do, uh, try to do two things this morning. One is I'd like to pick up, um, oh, yeah, yeah the, the, way to, to, the way to get at this is, um, you know, why are, we, why are we even thinking about biblical counseling? Um, you know, most people, when they think of counseling, they don't think of the church. They think of their insurance plan and counselors who might be in their, um, in their, their team, their network, uh, and somebody that then they would go to uh, for some guidance of some kind uh, into how to live their life. Um, I've had people, uh, Christian young men, sometimes come to me and they've been referred by a pastor or something like that, and they come in and they sit down and they say, you know, I don't want biblical counseling. And I say, okay, um, which is interesting because on my disclosure form, it plainly says that um, I work from a Christian point of view and find the Bible useful in speaking to almost every area of life. Uh, but there's, that, there's often a kind of a resistance to, uh, to, um, to letting the Bible uh, speak into our lives or assuming that somebody knows enough about the Bible to be able to... Um, speak to their life. Um, I've got a little handout to kind of work through this. If um, there's, I printed 30 of them. It looks like there'll be enough. Um, and uh, we're going to try to get through both sides of this. We're going to start with the pretty pictures on the front. Um, those look like picture frames. They're actually intended to be window frames. You'll see what I mean in a minute. Um, so pretend they're window frames even though they look like picture frames. 
And the idea behind a window frame, a window is something you see through, and the window that you look through determines what you see. You know, you, you, get, a, you get a hotel room and uh, you pay extra if it says ocean view, right? <laughs> As you're facing there. But, but if you didn't want to pay the extra, then you get a view of the, of the hotel parking lot. So the window you look through is, is extremely important. And uh, if you start with the little picture here with my paint up in the corner, um, you know, God's wired us so that we're very aware of ourselves. You know, if you weren't aware of yourself, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between yourself and the tree that you're leaning up against. So in God's kindness, He's made us to know where we where we stop and, and made aware of our feelings and our thoughts. We can think about ourselves. We can think about our thoughts. And when we're in pain, isn't it true that the first thing we think about is our pain? You know, if, if, you've, um, uh, if you've hurt yourself in some way, you can be, you know, looking at Niagara Falls, but you're thinking about the fact that you just smashed up your kneecap going up the stairs to get to this incredible view. Um, and it's a good thing that we attend to our pain uh, because if we didn't, we would walk in front of a bus. Um, uh, we would let, and people who can't feel pain um, are, you know, just damage themselves further. They destroy themselves. So it's in God's kindness that when we're in pain, whether it's physical pain or mental pain, emotional pain, you got fired and you've got pain, your girlfriend left you, you've got pain, um, your kids are having a fight with you or your parents are having a fight with you, um, all kinds of pain, and we zero in on that. Uh, so that's the first window that comes up for us. But the question is then, so what do we do with our pain? And, uh, you know, if you've got a pain in your body, you take it to your family doctor. You go to see the pain doctor. What about mental pain, emotional pain, relational pain? Uh, those are the kind of pain that we often take to um, a counselor. Um, and uh, so, but the counselor or the, the doctor, you know, if, you, if you're struggling with depression and you go to see your family physician, the family physician is zeroing in on, uh, when was the last time you really had a doctor who cared about the whole you? You know, no doctors have got time to care about the whole you. They care about this presenting symptom. So the doctor's focusing in on depression that you're struggling with, and the first thing, the quickest thing, is to offer medication. So, uh, which is, is an appropriate way of looking at the pain of depression, but that's all that's being seen. It's a small window. Uh, people don't have time to try to look at anything bigger. So, um, but there's another way of doing this for Christians, and that is they see their pain, they may be talking to a counselor who's not a religious counselor, um, uh, but they know that the Bible ought to be something that's helpful, so they turn to the Bible for comfort, and they open a window into the Bible and let uh, some encouraging words come in. Uh, and those encouraging words are, you know, um, uh, fear not, um, be bold, um, 
Um, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? Hope in God, for uh, you'll yet praise Him. Let the window of biblical comfort come in to deal with the pain that's going on there. And the point that I tried to make last week as we were ending was this point that, you know, that's really, those are pretty small windows. And that um, as a believer, we have a whole different way. We should have a whole different way of seeing ourselves. And that's the purpose of the big window frame at the bottom. And I, I just randomly found icons and started throwing them into this. Uh, this picture is not a finished work of art, what you see through this window, but it does have some important things in it. Um, we need to see ourselves, in, that we need to see that God is in the world, that God is in our world. We're in it, there's me, but God is in the world, and we are related by that yellow representation of a cross. We're connected to God, not only by creation, but also by redemption. And so there's a, re, it isn't just that, you know, you were in a car wreck and somebody did CPR and you never see him again, but you're living. But, you know, God has brought you back to life, but he's brought you into relationship with him. And that's a true thing about your life. Whatever else is going on, this relationship is there, relationship to Christ. And that ought to have some impact on the way that we think about ourselves in the world. Notice when you look at me, the little pink circle there that's kind of bumped up against the me. Well, that pink circle represents my pain. And your pain is there. Christians do not pretend that there's no pain. Um, we, we can look at it. We can name it. But look at the size of that pain compared to the pain in the top left corner, uh, which was intended to be like all-encompassing. Um, pain is now, it's there but it's not everything. It's not controlling my life. And the little green dot there, uh, that little green dot represents the pain doctor. It's not that once you get a worldview, you no longer go to doctors, that you no longer go to counselors, that you no longer go to psychiatrists. Um, it's there, but notice the size. It's, a, it's part of the story, but it's not the whole story. And this is where we so often go wrong. We get so obsessed with our pain that we, we, we zero down, tunnel in. You know, the, the, when I struggle with depression, the worst time for me is the 10 minutes before my alarm goes off because I'm lying in bed and I'm thinking about how terrible my life is. And the more I think about it, the more I spiral down. There's nothing else going on. The house is quiet. And all I can think about is misery, misery. All is misery. Um, but if I can, uh, if I can, I need a bigger frame of reference. When I get up then, um, I can stand in that place uh, on my floor that reminds me that God is in my world and I'm united to him by the work of Christ. So, so that's in my world. I'm getting a bigger picture. And I take into account that, um, that, that part of the way I live in that world, well, and then there's the world. There's, there's a whole big world outside. It's not just me. I've got pain but you know, I'm not the only person in this room who's struggling with pain this morning. Um, many, if not all of you, could name some kind of pain. It's important to keep that kind of perspective. Otherwise, we just become so self-centered uh, that we're, we're not fit to live with. So we, we get that perspective. You're not the only one. Yeah. 
you, you have to wait in line at the emergency room while they triage you and take the most urgent cases first. Um, but then there's the Bible. The Bible is not merely words of comfort, but it gives us a worldview, and it does speak to our relationship to God and our relationship to our pain and our relationship to one another. So that has to be taken into account. Um, also, there's, there's our church community there, which not only ministers to us, but also surrounds us with that lovely little group of people there who are bumped up against me and connected. Um, I am not alone. Uh, when I'm in counseling, it's me and the counselor, but other people tend to be very peripheral to that experience. But as I live my life, as I live with my pain, I can't ignore the fact that, um, you know, that some of you will ask me how I am, and you actually want to know, and you actually want to pray for me, and you actually want to encourage me along my way, and hopefully I'm not the only one who could say amen, thank you, Lord, for the kindness of God's people um, making that happen. So here's just a rough, a rough, pathetic um, uh, beginner uh, effort to try to suggest that, that if we're really going to deal with our pain, we, we need to deal with it in in a bigger context than we get when we think pain, doctor, pain, counselor. Okay? Any questions about that? Okay. Um, how did we get to this? How did we get to the place where most people, when they think of mental pain, mental anguish expresses itself in its emotions, our thoughts, maybe our actions, um, we, we act erratically or we don't act at all. You know, how, how has it come to be that, that we, for most people, the first thing that they think about is, is um, going to the doctor in the healthcare system and they don't think about the big picture here. Well, if you, if you flip over um, to the back page, um, and I apologize for the small print. This is an adaptation of a chart that I used when I was teaching at Indian Bible College, and it was on a great big piece of paper. I just crammed it down into the, this little side. But, but uh, this is a very simplified view of the history of soul care, and you can translate soul care as counseling. Um, uh, the idea of soul is the whole person, and we're caring for a living being uh, as a whole. And the, uh, just to f make a few highlights on here, I'd say, you know, again, we were looking at, at the beginning of the left-hand corner, you know, God, the creator, the redeemer, sustainer, he's the, he's the, he's who the story is about. We're in his story. We're in his world. Uh, we need to take that into account. And uh, through Christ, we've come to be uh, part of the church which ministers his blessings on earth. And I was thinking that, you know, when you turn to Scripture, that the book of Ephesians is really a wonderful, if you're going to pick out one book, this is the one I would pick, a beautiful model of, of what soul care looks like. And if you're familiar with the book of Ephesians, you, you'll get what I mean because the book of Ephesians starts with the big picture. Um, 
you know, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, he's called us out of darkness into his light. He paints the big picture. God is there and you're there. That God has reached down and pulled you out of real pain and real suffering into a relationship with him. And he describes the beauty of that relationship and wants you to be grounded in that relationship to really know that, that you know, if I stood before a firing squad, um, if I had to have a leg amputated, I know this, that because of Christ, my Father loves me. He's mine, and I am His. So, so Ephesians paints that picture for us. But then it turns the focus and said, because of that great big picture that God's in, um, now let's zero in to some of the things that are going on in your life, some of the pain that's there as a result of the fall, as a result of people wanting to be their own gods. Um, and let's look at some of the pain. Most pain is relational. Most Mental pain is relational pain. It's, it comes out of dysfunctions in a relationship between God and especially between one another. Um, and so uh, the, the second half of the book focuses especially on, on um, God's law for relationships are not intended to be a crushing burden. They're not intended to make you, oh, this is so hard. They're, they're, they're life-giving. They picture the way that God made you and wired you to live, uh, to live not by me first uh, and lying to everybody else, but speaking the truth about yourself and other people to speak it in love. Um, this is the way of life. This is the way of vitality. So the book of Ephesians is a great picture to uh, way to, to, to see this. Um, sort of the whole, a whole person counseling. Um, I won't go over the whole history of the church, but if you jump forward to the Reformation in 1517, suddenly um, the Word of God is becoming very close to the people of God. Uh, they're beginning to be able to read the Word in their own language. Um, they're beginning to see that it speaks of God and it speaks of your relationship, but it also speaks of how you live in the world. Uh, and um, in our tradition, um, people are talking a lot about that. And when you come to the period of the Puritans, um, you see that Puritan pastors in the 1600s are, are anxious not only to talk about God, but to talk about how we live in His presence before Him. And I jotted down there as an example Richard Baxter, uh, who was sort of a, a well-known Puritan period figure um, who wrote lots of books on how to live in the Christian life, how to live well, how to deal with your problems. Um, one was is called this Christian directory, and he's got, he tackles almost, it's like 900 pages long, and he talks, he's, he talks about, you know, problems like alcoholism and, and, and stealing from your employer and just talks about all sorts of stuff, giving in, teaching you how to live. Um, if you're interested in um, thinking more about, uh, about the Puritans and counseling, um, about 10 years ago, um, Tim Keller wrote an article uh, entitled Puritan Resources for Biblical Counseling. 
And uh, if you're interested in this, I recommend uh, it to you. You can access it through the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation. Uh, I've got the web, the, the thing for that, uh, the, the link for it up here. You can ask me. Um, the, but this is the article, uh, it's like 20 pages long, of, of Keller's research into how the Puritans understood the human heart better than most contemporary counselors. And so if you'd like to, like to do that, recommend you look it up. Be glad to help and guide you along that way. Um, so there's this great, you know, great Christian knowledge is being spread throughout Europe, England, America. But other things are spreading during the same time. Um, if you shift over to the middle of the, of the page, you see there the, the age of reason is arising. And the age of reason has this one idea that, you know, we can, we can figure it out ourselves. God exists, but, you know, God's not intimately involved with life the way that we live it. You know, he sort of, maybe he's the creator God and then left. You know, he, he built the watch, but you know, it runs on its own, you know, so the thought began, you know, we can figure out our own problems, therefore, we really don't need uh, the input of the church, we really don't need the presence of God, he may be there, but we really don't need that, people can figure this out, so the people are becoming more independent, more thinking, um, you know, I can figure it out, um, but you know, it's, it's only a short step from saying, Basically, God is there, but he's sort of irrelevant to saying, in effect, you know, God is dead. He, he doesn't exist. But if God doesn't exist, there's all sorts of problems. How do you explain what you see? Well, that led to the rise of um, basically evolutionary thought, which gives an answer to the question, so how do you explain me if there's no creator, if there's no creator God? Um, and so you get this idea, now we can explain everything that we see based on evolutionary determinism, and uh, that gets down to what does that mean for your problems? Well, your problems, since there's no God, there can't be an ultimate source of right and wrong, so your problems have to be self-contained, they have to all be within you, and we just need to figure out what's the mess that's in there, what's the mess that you inherited from your ancestors or your great, great evolutionary ancestors. And it was with that kind of idea that along comes Freud, who figured out or decided that, you know, uh, we, since there's no God and everything is in there, you know, man is a mess. Inside, he's driven by, by, by drives of murder, and lust, murder and adultery, that, that kind of, it's where his energy comes from. Um, it's survival of the fittest. Kill your enemies uh, and, and, and mate. And, um, but that doesn't go over very well in, um, in Victorian culture. So you've got this clash. I got this inner drive, but it's clashing what's going on on the outside. So now we've got this problem. How do you live that way? Well, you end up going to therapy. You go to psychoanalysis, and f basically, for for Freud, and now therapy is insight into drives. You you go to psychoanalysis, and after ten years, you finally figure out what the drives are that are at work inside of you, and somehow that's supposed to help you. I'm not quite sure how, but but insight is a great thing. Um, 
uh, we don't have time to go into it, but, but some people disagreed with Freud and branched off and created what I've sort of grouped together as different schools of, of counseling or psychotherapy. Um, people who followed Adler, who was a disciple of Freud for a while, um, basically concluded that, you know, it's not those terrible, in dark internal drives, but that, um, you know, man has drives, but he can solve his problems. His drives are leading him to solve problems. So, so therapy becomes problem solving. Uh, and we'll talk, we'll try to figure it out. And because man is a communal animal, we don't need to keep this secret between you and the psychoanalyst. Now we can gather together in community and work on problem solving. Another, uh, another direction that, that counseling went followed Carl Jung, um, which basically believed that, you know, back in your past, it's not that there were all these, these dark forces that you brought forward, but you've kind, of, you've kind of got traits from archetypes or something like that, that are, and you've got these personality characteristics, and you bring these things forward. And what that means is that that counseling is discovering what's within you. Counseling is discovering who you really are uh, and just letting that out, letting that be. And, and the, I guess the thing I want to underline about all three of these, realize that you know, if you take any given counselor, and, and I at least could, would, would be inclined, to, I'll put them in this pigeonhole or this one or this one, but realize that all of these views to solving human pain and suffering Start, started with the presupposition, the premise that there is no God, that man is simply an animal and therapy is helping the animal deal with the mess that the world, um, the world that he's in. And uh, we don't have time to deal with it, but I, I kind of grouped a few in each one of those columns um, going down there, bringing it up to the, the current, uh, current day. But um, the... The only thing, the only problem with uh, a secular counselor is if this view of man as an animal impacts the way that he treats you. That, uh, and, and you could say one, that basically the goal is happiness, right? Uh, basically, we want to pain, pain relief, make people happy. This, this is the thing. Um, so, but what happened to the church? What was what about the church and its and its expansive view of speaking of the word of God and the love of God into the struggles that we have as human beings? Well, along came the 1800s. While all of this non-Christian thoughts going on, the church was having its own problems. Um, the um, in the 1800s, with the what was called the Second Great Awakening. Um, the emphasis, what the church was busy doing, shifted from solo care to a couple of things. One thing, it shifted to an emphasis on con conversion and revival. And that's a conversion's a good thing, right? We all want to believe in conversion. But if you become obsessed with conversion, if you only look at a person getting converted, becoming a Christian, now the job is done. You know, now they're sort of on their own. Um, uh, the way you keep a person going is you have revivals, so you go somewhere and have a religious experience, but 
then you go away from that and now you're stuck with the rest of life the way it's going on. And life wasn't too bad in some ways. The Industrial Revolution was going on, um, Victorianism was going on, and everybody was living prim and proper lives. And, and so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all that bad, but the church was distracted. The church also became distracted in the 1800s by the drive for social reform. Um, there were a lot of social ills that people saw, and the church said this shouldn't be. So the church becomes activated, and what it's beginning to doing is to deal with, with, um, with temperance, alcohol abuse, uh, get rid of devil drink, um, with uh, abolition, uh, the, the, the evils and, and, and terrible evils and destructiveness of slavery are getting the attention of at least a church in the north, and the church is getting involved in fighting for this cause, causes of, of labor injustice, um, um, other, other social reforms. The church is busily becoming involved on this, and because the church only has so much bandwidth, now it's on, over here doing conversion and revival, and now it's doing social reform. Uh, it, there's not too much room for talking about uh, how, how, to, how to grow a mature Christian life, how to deal with the problems that come along. But that's not the end. Um, some people realized life was a mess but didn't know what to do with it, so there's a movement away from um, thinking about, from repent, sin and repentance. You know, if I, if I, if I yell at you, uh, I probably should repent if you didn't deserve it. Uh, I should repent and ask your forgiveness and seek reconciliation. Um, instead of looking at those outward kinds of things, the focus begins to move toward an emphasis on personal piety, on your heart in relationship to God, which is a very good thing. And there was a real need for that in the church. But you can be so focused that you're, you're focused on your personal relationship with God that somehow it never speaks. It doesn't speak fully enough to the way that you're involved in relationships. So there's a lot going on, and poor old counseling and soul care is getting pushed more and more to the background. And not only that, in America, the westward expansion is going on, and behind the idea of westward expansion is the rugged individualist. And again, I can solve my own problems. Um, uh, I, I'm on my own. Look at what I can do. I can conquer this land. So I really don't need the church to be speaking into my life the way that I might have, have before. So, so at the same time that the world that doesn't know God is growing in its counseling influence, the church is shrinking in its counseling influence. Um, and this is going on until about the 1950s. In the 1950s, the world, World War II is over, recovery is beginning to go on, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's leave it to beaver, it's Ozzie and Harriet, you know, life is, has little problems, but life is basically, you know, pretty good. Um, it, the only problem is that even though we're beginning to discover economic prosperity, somehow the country has lost some of its spiritual moorings and its connection with God, and people discover that prosperity doesn't make us happy. We may have more than we ever had before, but depression is on the rise. Um, relational dysfunction is, is on the rise. Um, 
people, people if they're willing to, to drill down a little bit, are realizing that, that they're in a mess, but they've got nowhere to turn. Now, there were a group of people, psychologists, who said, you know, we've got, you know, we shouldn't keep all this great psychological truth that we've gathered together to ourselves. We should share it. So there's a movement of taking psychological principles and sharing them, putting them in a Christian uh, kind of dress and sharing them with folks. And this is very, this is good stuff. Uh, it's a practical wisdom, very helpful. Um, people, you know, how to, how, to, how to live, how to deal with, how to raise children. Uh, you know, what is, what is, what does Christianity have to say about that? The only problem is that it begins to sort of have a life that's separated from, it's a different worldview than, than the worldview that you got back with the Puritans and back um, when you're looking at the big frame picture there. Um, and so there's a lot of help, but it doesn't, it isn't necessarily biblical help. And a lot of people were beginning to realize, well, this is a problem. Until around 1970, somebody named Jay Adams came along who said, this is really terrible. Um, we've forgotten the Bible, and we've forgotten that the church should be, should be speaking to people's life needs and life struggles. Um, uh, basically, he was saying that Scripture speaks to all of the issues of human life, which notice is different than saying Scripture alone can solve all your problems. But it is saying that, that, from a, that Scripture gives us a worldview that addresses all of your problems. And this, this was like starting a wildfire um, in, in tinder dry brush. This just began to catch on across the church uh, and grow in a lot of ways. Um, it led to something that we're, some of us are familiar with here, the CCF, the Christian Counseling and Educational Foundation, um, and, and their publications, and a whole host of other people who are getting on this, let's bring, let's bring care to souls, but let's be sure we bring the Word of God to bear on that. Um, one other person that was in, impactful in my own life, I put him on there because this is my chart, uh, Dan Ellender, very grateful for uh, a different perspective than Jay Adams, but a very helpful one. And so you come to biblical counseling. Um, and that's what we're thinking about, trying to get back to that, the picture, the big picture frame um, as, as we live our lives and as we live our lives with other people. Um, one last note, um, at the bottom of that chart, I put in this thing that circle or ellipse called integrative therapy. Um, most non-Christian counselors are, integration, are integrationists, which means is that... Um, they don't, they don't have a particular axe to grind about a personality theory. They're not, they, they just want to do what works. Uh, and so they, they pick and choose and steal. And so that there's a, there, it's, it's more about what works, what's going to help you. It's, it's results-driven rather than theory-driven, which in one way is a good thing. Um, but it is, um, it is interesting. Um, um, I'm an integrationist. Because I can look at, uh, at therapy as problem solving and I'd say, you know, I want to help people solve their problems. And I see what people who've done, they've done a lot of thinking about how to pe help people sort through their problems. Boy, I'm not stupid. Um, I'll, 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 I'll learn the tools that I can use when I'm talking to believers or unbelievers from a biblical frame of reference. I can use that. Um, 
I believe that um, we, we do have um, dark drives inside. The darkest drive of all is in our hearts is to be like God, determining our own standard of good and evil. Um, boy, I'm all over that. And if anybody can help me see how to uncover that, um, um, that's a tool I can really use. And, you know, God has made us in His image. We're beautiful creatures, and there's a lot to discover. As you become a Christian, you have got more resources, you know. So I'm all over discovery. Uh, I'm really interested in tools that will help people not be put off by the gospel message, but to see that looking into Scripture is something that's rich and full and helpful and blessed. So, so uh, but I, I take them. I take those how-to, those skill kind of insets, and, and I make them work in, in my big picture frame view of what it means to be a human being and what the goal is. Um, so, I'm a biblical integrationist. Um, it's great fun. And uh, if we had more time, we would talk about what that all looks like. Um, that is just sort of an introduction. Uh, I'm going to risk it and say... Uh, in the five minutes remaining, anybody got a question? My sound guy is going to take this mic back to Sheila. I have a psych degree, so I kind of got a little bias. Um, I, I like your chart, though. Um, it's great. Uh, a lot of people are fooled by some of these um, therapies on the right. The only thing I, I agree with what you're saying about tools, I think... Uh, there's some wisdom in cognitive therapy, which to me is just your thinking impacts your behavior. And I think there's a lot in the Bible about that, where if you're gonna, your thoughts are just gonna spiral out of control, obviously, you know, it's gonna affect your life. And I think there's some wisdom in taking a look at your, your thoughts and figuring out if they're, what they could be and maybe maybe correcting them. Yeah. So, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Most Christian counseling is cognitive behavioral counseling. Um, they, yeah, let's think about what you, you know, what are your thoughts? What are your views? Uh, and, and that would be something, yeah, I think that, that uh, uh, as opposed to the only thing that's wrong is your behavior. If all you want to do is change your behavior, then you go back to behavioral therapy. But if you want to think about what are the thoughts that lead to behavior, the only problem that, that, that the, the, or the, the major problem that I see with that is, is that, that I know what I should do. I know um, where my thoughts are wrong, and I've often got good thoughts, or, but I don't want to do them. And, and um, so uh, sometimes in, in cognitive behavioral therapy, they they get your thinking straightened out, but unless there's a mechanism to help you deal with the fact, yeah, but I don't want to do it. Um, so the Puritans, Puritans saw that, that you know, we're, we've got our thinking, we've got our feeling, and we've got our acting. And, and no one of those, those are three ways of, of thinking and talking about what we do. No one of those, though, is ultimate, um, but because they're all influenced by our heart. They're all influenced by our drives. And, and this is, um, so somehow we need to get at the fact that, yeah, um, I know I should go and I should apologize, but I don't want to. 
uh, somehow we got to somehow you have to address that. So, but but I do need help in getting my, you know, r realizing that my thought was, you know, whatever. So thanks, Jeff. Yes, uh, I, I tend to agree with Sheila. Ultimately, it it comes down to spiritual matters, stinking thinking. However, there are instances in which even Christians are unable to control their thinking. Uh, being in a situation where you simply cannot control your mind. And so therefore it requires something else. Typically that might be medication, time, both, divine intervention, whatever it takes to get oneself into the place to where they can even have any sort of cognitive control. Um, and that's, that's, a, that's a difficult thing. The other thing I wanted to point out too is would, I, I'm curious as to Jay Adams uh, starting this movement, if it isn't a bit guilty of sort of the encyclopedic view of the Bible, that the Bible addresses cosmology, mm. it addresses, you know, geology, it addresses quantum mechanics, it addresses, bio, you know, <laughs> therefore it addresses, you know, human psychological needs. Uh, and and I, that, I've, I've wondered about that just a little bit. I'm not saying scripture doesn't have mm. answers, and I'm not saying that sin isn't the ultimate issue. And I'm not saying that even with drug addiction, um, in, in a lot of cases, mental illness, it, it is a spiritual issue, but it's not just that, I don't think. So. Thank you. Um, okay, we've got time to go into Jay Adams, but, you know, whenever a movement begins, um, it has fits and starts, and, you know, you, you put out a position and somebody says, well, have you thought about that? And they no, I didn't think about that. Now I'll think about it. So I've kind of modified my position. So, so there's a there's definitely a you know a change there. One thing that was great about the Puritans was that they realized, for instance, um, uh, I don't remember who it was, whether it was Baxter uh, or whether it was um, uh, someone else, but uh, identified four different causes for depression. One of which was physical that our brains just aren't working the way that they're supposed to. So, so he recognized that, um, you know, it might, it might be we're depressed, be, we feel bad because we're doing bad. Uh, it might be we're depressed because we just have a kind of a, you know, an Eeyore temperament. You know, everything is kind of dark and uh, it might be because we actually have a mental, something's not firing right. It might be because of, of demonic influence. So the Puritans were very robust in their, you know, in their thing and we're, we're resisting getting categorized into kind of a, a simplistic, biblicistic kind of, of way. Uh, I'm sorry to say thank you. Um, tons of questions I'd love to exercise them, but I'm looking at the clock and we need to stop. But this is only the end of today and this is only the end of this section of Discipleship Hour. Nate's going to speak to us for a moment about what you've got to look forward to. I'm so thankful for uh, these past, what has it been, four weeks, three weeks uh, that Ed has taken us through and just really, uh, it's the tip of the iceberg uh, in regards to this subject. If you have been left uh, wanting, like I have, in terms of wanting to explore these issues more, 
would you talk to me or Ed or Brett or Bob or Bo or any of the elders uh, just and, and tell us that so that we can, as we think through to the future, um, tap into uh, to this maybe again and, and maybe tap into to Ed as well. Um, next week, we officially begin our uh, spring break, which is four weeks long. So discipleship hour will be off uh, until April 7th. 